Nice and loud. Meme, water, chaos, mighty, blood. blood. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path, so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Good stuff. That's one of my favorite in the uh, in the whole psalm there. It's one of my 22 favorite octaves in that psalm. Um, let's see here. We have a couple prayer requests today. One of them is for uh, Donna, who's Ron, uh, you know, that came up here, the Jewish man and his yeah. wife. Okay. Mm -hmm. And she got, I told you last year, she got hit. And so uh, she had some problems with her uh, uh, neck and the like. And she's having... Uh, uh, for left shoulder and neck, he's asking for prayers for that. And on 17 May, she's having an operation on her second and third toes on her right foot. So, uh, yeah, we want to keep them in prayer. And That's then, tomorrow. what's that? Yes, tomorrow. And then Akemi, who attends from Japan, uh, and her husband, Kiyosumi, they're, uh, they have a ministry in Japan, and she uh, is looking to glorify God in whatever way that... Uh, uh, he leads and she's written a couple books one of them has been printed in arabic and it's kind of taken off but uh, she has another book i think that's specifically ministering to japanese that's really needed japan is a very close country and one thing that happens in japan is missionaries go over there and paul will tell you this if he was still alive that uh uh you never really know if they made a true conversion or not because everything to them is kind of a social thing and so you know you really don't know yeah, too polite to say. they're too yeah it's 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 one of those things where they and they may show up for 30 years and not believe a thing so yeah it's it's very hard to know the what yeah exactly and so uh you know somebody like them who are christians and are in the ministry they really need prayers for being effective because they can get a foot in the door that the western culture could never understand properly and uh, so there you go with that couple prayer requests, and we'll do that in just a sec. But first, we'll read May 16th. He was a general who spent his spare time ministering to the poor. Charles Gordon, a famous and beloved English general, born in 1833, his mas masterful tactical skills, heroic bravery, and tragic death are well-known historically, but his unwavering faith in God and tireless work for the poor are less well-remembered. In 1868, Gordon wrote a document called My Experiences Showing the Order in Which God Revealed Himself to Me. He wrote, One, ever since I remember, I had a belief that Jesus was the Son of God and used to have feelings of deep depression on account of my faults at that time. Two, I knew Jesus to be my Savior and had assurance, but was not established till I had gone through 10 years of captivity commencing at the Crimean War in 1864. Three, at my father's death, I was brought to think how vain the world was to give satisfaction. But after my brother-in-law's death and consequent seclusion at Gosport for a month, God made me count the cost and conclude that his service should be all, and that if everything was given up, he would abundantly repay me in this world. For after a long dreary struggle, looked back on with horror for eight or nine months of very earnest work, 
God began to bring under my body, uh, bring to bring under my body in this way. God began to bring, I don't know what that means. Anyway, five, he gave me first to see that the fruits of the Spirit could only be only had by abiding in Christ or being joined to him. But how joined was a still ministry, was still a mystery. Gosh, I got dyslexia on that one. Um, six, there's no recorded number six. Seven, next he showed me that he was glorified only so far as those fruits were produced. Eight, next that the Holy Ghost produced them. Nine, next, that the great truth that it was the Holy Ghost in me which produced them while myself was dead and incapable of producing anything good. And ten, next, that God in me gave out faith as fire gives out heat. Shortly thereafter, he began ministering at a rescue mission in the slums. From then on, almost every waking moment not spent on military duties was devoted to evangelism and work with and among the poor. Gordon rescued countless boys off the street, teaching them the Bible and how to read and write. He gave out several hundred suits a year, bought boots by the gross, and helped many find jobs, speaking fondly of his boys as kings. He also helped the elderly, prostitutes, criminals, and the terminally ill. On May 16, 1870, he was called to the bedside of a dying girl. His tender heart is reflected in a letter he wrote. He said, there is a very beautiful young girl dying tonight. In a few short hours, she will glide into a bright, balmy land and see such sights as would pass our understanding. She suffers much, poor thing, and makes one feel, oh, if I could soften this pang, what would I not do? But still, it must be true that it's, it is better for her that she should. Otherwise, God who loves her so deeply wouldn't, would alter it. Of another deathbed visit, he wrote, I went to Polly's and saw her off to the Golden City. She left at 10 minutes to 12, very happily and beautifully. What are those bands playing for, she said just before her departure. It was the harpers with their harps harping the song of Moses and the Lamb as she neared the riverbank. Tune, tune your harps, ye saints in glory, all is well. Christians die in different ways. For some, as with the first young girl, there is intense pain and suffering. A few, like Polly, are welcomed to heaven by the music of the hosts of heaven. Whatever our lot, God will be there. They were all holding harps that God had given them, and they were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Revelation 15, 2 and 3. One more prayer. Graham today told me he's still going through all kinds of problems in uh, in. Uh, uh, Scotland. Scotland and so uh, we want to keep him as prayers in prayer as well so here we go Heavenly Father we certainly pray for those people that are mentioned here and uh, somebody else that uh, I had an email with just before leaving today who's a little down in her spirits and we would pray that you would encourage her and give her happiness in her heart and uh, Lord we just thank you for the chance to pray for others and we know that our time in need of prayer is right around the corner at any given time so uh, help us to be faithful to pray, pray for others while we are uh, uh, healthy, and we would hope that they would continue to pray for us in our times of sickness as well. So, Lord, we uh, thank you for this class. We thank you for the chance to get into your word. What a precious word it is. It's just glorious. It's beyond compare and beyond imagination, the things you have placed into this precious word for us. So help us to handle it properly and to uh, glorify you with our analysis of it tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now I see that uh, it is 
510, and I don't know if my mom is coming or not. You never know with her, but my wife said she'd be here, and she's not here, so we'll see if she shows up. What? The bridge might be up. At this time of year, probably not. Okay, 96. The what? Here? Well, she always parks over at the... Uh, at the uh, laundromat, they don't care. They know her, and yeah. So okay, here we go. Nine I'll six. Stop, but I'll start at three. Three. Okay. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Cephas. <laughs> I'll tell you later. Six. Or is it only what is so funny? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Oh, we're on six already. What happened last week? He was reading or I one of us was reading and no, I, I said he said Cephas and I said Cephas and he went back Cephas, Cephas and I said Cephas and it was like I woke up, I'm not kidding, I woke up at two forty six that night and I was I was laughing when I woke up because I was dreaming about our conversation here in Bible class and how people online must have thought, what are they, two kids? You know, three-year-olds? My Bible says Cephas. It's a C-E-P-H-A-S, but it's pronounced Cephas. They have a line over the E. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, and it is an E, so it's, uh, uh, well, forget that. Cephas or Cephas, yeah, but it's a K sound. So uh, anyway, but all, all in good fun. Um, anyway, so here we have... Um, uh, there was something I was going to say about that. Oh, yours again in verse three says, um, uh, in verse four, it says, don't we have the right? How does it read it again? Don't we have the right to food and drink? See, I like that. They use, um, what do you call them? Uh, <laughs> when you have a D-O-N apostrophe T contraction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's just more normal. Yes. This one says do not. And when I type my sermons, I always type without contractions, but I like to listen to contractions. So, and I hadn't noticed that before until right now. So anyway, here we go, 9-6. Uh, this verse is not actually a new thought which is submitted to the Corinthians, but the completion of the series of questions which began in verse four, which he just read you, though stated as questions, they are rhetorical in nature and are to be taken as affirmative statements. I and Barnabas have the right to earn a living from our preaching. By asking it rhetorically, after having given the evidence of his apostleship, though, he's merely showing the ridiculous nature of the situation. There was seemingly, however, a group that felt Paul and his ministry wasn't actually worthy of being supported by the church. It probably goes to the decision rendered in Galatians 2, 9, and 10, which reads thus, James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Once again, that verse right there and what he said shows that there's one gospel to Jews and Gentiles. Just because they're going to different people, they're proclaiming the same message. Okay, maybe it was believed that because Paul was only sent to the Gentiles, he wasn't worthy of support. However, as history has borne out, his ministry and letters have been far more productive in establishing the church than all the other letters combined. His words have comprised the main doctrine of the church for nearly 2,000 years. I would go on to say that I'm all done with the Hebrews commentary tomorrow. I typed uh, the second to the last verse today, and 
I am fully convinced that Paul wrote Hebrews oh. as well. I'm fully convinced of it. I know it's not signed. There's a reason why the Lord withheld his name from there. But there's really no doubt in my mind that he wrote that. And you take from Romans until Hebrews, that is the major doctrine of the Bible. Everything else, you know, you've got John and James and you've got Peter and Jude. And then, of course, Revelation. But those, those epistles have no weight in comparison to Paul. And that's why Paul was selected is because he was a... He was a Pharisee. Pharisee. That's right. He was a, a Pharisee, which means by default, he was a scholar. They, I, I've heard it said, and I, I've never read this anywhere, I, I mean in a, uh, a document to prove it, but I've heard it said that the Pharisees had to memorize the books of Moses. In other words, they had to be able to recite any part of it upon demand during their, uh, you know, their education, and they had to be able to repeat it back. If that's true, that's a real thing because, I mean, that's a lot. You know, we've been going through it now for eight or ten years, and we're about three-quarters of the way through, maybe not quite, but it's a lot of information. And be able to say, oh, yeah, you know, that would be a real achievement. But, you know, back then, memory was the way that they did things. They would sit and just memorize and memorize and memorize, and there are parts of the world that still do that today. When I was in school, you had to memorize the math tables. I don't know if they have that anymore yes. or not. They do. Tables. They still have that? I don't oh, probably, that. probably not, but that's what I, you had to memorize them, right? And so you never forget things when you memorize and them. you didn't have TV back, way back. You didn't have TVs and stuff. That's right. Yeah. So this is just what you did. You just learned. That's right. So that's exactly right. Okay, so um, despite this, Talking about Paul's letters being the main doctrinal uh, area of Scripture, the New Testament body, despite this and despite the true apostolic ministry that he had, he continued to support himself and work for a living. Anybody, what did he do for a living? Tent maker. Tent maker. So you hear about the, uh, the mission organization called Worldwide Tent Makers. That is their mission. They send people to parts of the world where people support themselves off the economy and they fit into the uh, the economy and they are ministers or what do you call missionaries you know in in in, in secret basically well, in other words they go there for one reason and they actually do that but they are sent there as missionaries but they have to earn their own way in that worldwide tent makers anyway um, it is known from acts 18:13 that he was a tent maker by trade in this, he worked to support himself. The Greek word for working is ergo zethai, and it indicates manual labor. You think of the word ergo, that's right. Okay, so, uh, yep, despite his tireless efforts in sharing the gospel, he was a man of physical labors as well. One final note on this verse is that who else were tent makers in the, uh, along with Paul? Yeah, that's right. What did you say? Aquila and Priscilla. Oh, yes. Yeah, one final note on this verse is that I just wanted to see if anybody knew. Good good for you. Um, is that uh, this is the last time Barnabas is mentioned in Scripture. The previous mention of him was found in Acts 15. In that account, Paul and Barnabas had a great dispute about a matter which caused them to almost come to blows. Does anybody remember what the issue was? John Mark. John Mark. He went with them on the first missionary journey. He left early. Paul, I mean, uh, yeah, Paul did not like that. Barnabas was his cousin and said, that's okay. On the second journey, we're going to take him along with us. And Paul says, he ain't coming with us. He abandoned us on the first. This is paraphrasing here. This is Charlie Garrett paraphrasing. <laughs> anyway, yeah, he's not coming with us. And they had what was called a paroxysm. It was such a violent argument. They almost came to blows. And it's because 
Paul did not want somebody that was not willing to step up and stick to it. And so, and you know, that's what happens when you're not used to things or you're whatever, you're lonely or different things affect you differently. You may not be able to handle a, a particular, uh, you know, situation and later you can. Barnabas felt he could, Paul felt he couldn't, but later, yeah, yeah later in Paul's writings, he asks for t uh, for Mark. He says, you know, he's, he's useful to my ministry. That's right. He's profitable to me. That's right. So, you know, everything in its due time, but there's no record in scripture of Paul and Barnabas reconciling. Okay. They divided at that time and there's no record of them having met up again. However, it appears from this verse that Barnabas took Paul's example of working for a living to heart and continued to follow this pattern in his own ministry. Life application, there is nothing wrong with good hard work. In fact, the pastor who gets out and tends to the church grounds, works around his house, or works physically in some other way will be a positive example to those in the church to not sit around collecting welfare or charity when they are fully capable of earning their own way. The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10, anybody? If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. That's right. In this verse, the same word for work, ergosestai, is used, which was used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.6. Don't be a sluggard. Rather, if your physical makeup and the economy around you allows it, be productive with your hands, not causing others to support you when you are fully capable of earning a living. I wish more people in this country would follow that pattern, but, you know, people are flooding over by the hundreds of thousands to come to the land of promise and sit around and collect welfare. It's really sad what we're allowing, but this is the way it is. That's the promise they've been told. That's the promise that they've been told. Free health care, free money, sit around, get TVs, and, you know, we're, we're breeding a generation of people that will do nothing. And it's a very sad thing. Very sad. Anyway, 9-7. Oh, I've got to tell you, before we go on, I'll say this, that yesterday, it was, it was yesterday, I got done with all of my work early, and I thought, what am I going to do? I, I, that hasn't happened in as long as I can remember, and I emailed to Sergio, and I said, I don't know how people can have nothing to do. I, I literally, it, terrible. I, I, I thought, you know, I, so I went out and started just finding little things to do. Normally I have my day planned and it centers all around the church. And then there are times where I'll say, I need to go out water the plants here. I need to go cut these there. I need to do, but this was one of those times where I had a whole day of work planned and it all got done early. And I, it was a terrible feeling. I literally, it was a terrible feeling. I, and there's no such thing as that. I, I got to keep going. Anyway, so nine seven it is. Try on shoes. Try. Oh yeah, I'll do. That. I'll take your advice on that. Thanks. He said I could go try on shoes. None of them would be comfortable. No. Yeah, I, I got I got shoes that are guaranteed to last a lifetime with proper care. Why go anywhere else? Okay, verse nine seven. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Okay, good job. The first one is a little different in this. It says, whoever goes to war at his own expense. So, same idea, soldier, go to war. Anyway, Paul now continues with, there is a verse in Ecclesiastes that is very hard to translate. Um, different Bibles take it completely differently, and it's about being discharged from war, or, uh, yeah, I, and I'll think of it in a minute. If no discharge from this army, I think. 
Yeah, if you find that, pull it up, and I'll, I'll give you some different translations on that. Kind of the same thought here. Um, it, it's in Ecclesiastes, and I don't want to go rifling around looking for it, but if you can find it, it's talking about being discharged from war or uh, anyway, and I'll show you the differences if you pull it up because it's a great verse to see how people, the Hebrew is d difficult and people have to say, what is he trying to say? Uh, Sergio told me, this is kind of an off thing, but I might as well say it, is that when you read the Proverbs, you have to really insert the intent of what's being said. It's very short uh, words that are just put together. And so when you read it, it's not like reading a sentence that says, John is going to store to buy milk. Okay, it's a sentence that has thoughts and you have to say, what are these thoughts trying to tell me? And so that's why you get such a variance in translations and things like the Proverbs uh, and why it's not good to be dogmatic over one translation over another. If you type in the word war, into uh, Ecclesiastes and uh, pull it up. You'll probably find it very quickly. Anyway, um, this is 9-7. Paul now continues with three more questions which are rhetorical in nature. Each demands a response of nobody. He begins with warriors. Whoever goes to war at his own expense? Nobody. Do those who fight the battles for king and country do so at their own expense? No. Instead, they are fed, they're clothed, and paid by whoever they are fighting for. Even those who are mercenaries fight for pay by the power who has hired them. If a soldier who is enlisted to take life is so paid for his service, how much more then should a soldier who is sent out to preserve life be paid for the warfare he wages? And Paul equates the ministry of Christ to an ongoing battle. He says this in Ephesians chapter 6. Let me go there really quickly. Did you find it yet? No. Look for the word discharge then. Uh, Ephesians chapter, because you're looking in the NIV, and I'm sure that's the word. Eight, eight, eight says, no one has the power of the Spirit to retain the Spirit. No one has the power in the day of death. There is no release from that. That is it. Okay, I, I, we're going to get that, keep that verse, and I'm going to take you to some different translations, but we'll do that after we get done with this. Uh, um, he says this in Ephesians 6, 12, and 13. Um, uh, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So we're in a warfare and some people are paid to take life. Can we help you? Yeah, she's 25 minutes late. Um, that's okay, Miss Garrett, we love you anyway. Um, let's see here. So, likewise, he notes to his beloved protege, 1 Timothy verse, I, chapter 1, verse 18, he says this. Hang on a second here. Uh, Philemon, 1 Timothy 1, verse 18. The charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you wage the good warfare. The lesson from this is that the soldier of Christ should, in fact, be paid for his services by the church for whom he wages. Next, he asks, who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit? Again, the question demands an answer that the vine dresser does partake of the fruit of the vine. It is right and expected that he should do so. In the very first such example of the planting of a vineyard, the Bible notes this. It's in the book of Genesis. It's in the ninth chapter, and it'll take me just a second to get there. It says 9.20. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. 
Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. So he partook of the fruit of his own vine. Okay, Noah not only planted a vineyard, he also enjoyed the benefit of what the vineyard produced. Regardless of whether one finds fault in him for getting drunk, the fact is that he partook of his vineyard. Later in the law itself, and certainly the verse to which Paul is speaking here in this verse, Moses notes to the people of Israel prior to their entry into the land of Canaan, this in Deuteronomy chapter 20. It says there, I'll go back to verse 4. Oh, I'm in, no, it's 20. I'm in the wrong chapter. Okay, then the officers shall speak to the people saying, what man is there that is built a house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man dedicate it. And what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man eat of it. I'll finish the thought uh, just so you know some of the other questions they ask. And what is man is there who is not who is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man marry her. And then it says, uh, the officers shall speak further to the people and say, what man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. So there you go. They had provisions for all kinds of things in the law of Moses that were beneficial to the people, including vineyard and not having partaken of it yet. Okay. So again, as he did concerning the warrior, Paul equates those who labor for Christ as farmers. In 2 Timothy 2.6, he shows that the expectation is that the spiritual farmer should be allowed to participate in the benefits of the harvest in which he labors. When he says the hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops, it wouldn't make any sense to do otherwise. The lesson from this is that the one who works in Christ's field should be paid for his services by the church for whom he farms. In his third question, he asks about the flocks of the field. He asks, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Again, the answer is that those who do so certainly partake of their efforts. Under the law, the tithe of the flocks and herds were taken to the temple um, where the temple stood, and they were eaten by the giver after they were sacrificed. This is found in Deuteronomy 12, 6, and 7. We went through that a couple weeks ago with one of the tithing verses, and we'll go through it again when we get to Deuteronomy. What they did is they, they had the tithe. And they were to take their tithe down to Jerusalem. And one of the things was the firstborn of the animals, uh, the, the tenth of them, the what? Up to, thank you, up to Jerusalem. And uh, so they, they take their tithes and other things for sacrifice down there. But the tithes, the tenth animal is taken down and they present it. And that animal is slaughtered and a certain portion of it is taken for the priests. And a certain portion is burned on the uh, altar to God. All right. And then the rest of it goes back to the guy that raise the animal. It's theirs. It's their tithe. And what do they do with it? They eat it before the Lord, right? Only in the third year, the year of the tithe, they gave away the tithe, okay? Once again, most people don't know that here in this church. You've probably heard it 10 million times because I want people to understand tithing is not a New Testament precept. But if you're going to preach tithing in your church, you need to do it properly. And nobody does it properly. They say you got to give 10% and they just drop it at that. That is not what the tithe verses say to begin with. So we'll stop there. We'll be going through it again and again over the next uh, year or two or three, whenever we get to Deuteronomy 12 and Deuteronomy 14. Okay, 
as before, the work of those in the leadership positions in the church is equated to that of the shepherd. In Acts 20, 28, Paul states to the leaders in Ephesus, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Peter uses the shepherd terminology again in 1 Peter 5, verse 2. Thus, the lesson from this is that the one who tends to Christ's flock should be paid for his services by the church for whom he shepherds. From these three examples, Paul clearly defends the principle that it is not out of the ordinary for the one in the leadership to expect to receive the benefit of his labors directly from the church. But Paul did not do that. Paul would not accept it from some churches and others. He said to the Corinthians, we'll see it later, I robbed those in Macedonia so that I wouldn't be a burden to you. And he had a reason for doing this. Paul was a very smart man. He was the right pick. Obviously, God knows everything. He made the right choice. But we can see that when we study the life of Paul and when we see the things he did and how he responded to different churches. Anyway, life application. In today's world, it is common for pastors and other clergy to be paid for their services. This is right and appropriate. However, it was never intended for people in such positions to be paid extravagant amounts. Those who have jet planes, million-dollar mansions, and flashy clothing and jewelry make a mockery of the humble, hard-working lives of the apostles who established the church. If your pastor lives a life of flash and pomp, you should probably find another pastor in a more Bible-centered church. And that's not to say that there could be somebody that's very wealthy that became a pastor. Yeah. Okay, you can't hold that against them. Yeah. Somebody that has a nice house, whatever. But if there's somebody that goes into the ministry and they're making millions of dollars and their people are, they're telling their people that, you know, sow a seed and you'll be blessed. Listen, it doesn't work that way. Okay, so um, give me that verse again before we go on, just so that I can show you uh, what Chapter was. Chapter 8, verse 8. Okay, I'm going to go here. Hang on a second. And this will take just a second to pull it up. But it's interesting to read this. Um, let's see here. And that's Ecclesiastes. This will take a second to get this thing going. ECC. Okay. Eight. Eight. All right. Mm -hmm. Is that the one that I want? Okay. Yeah. I'm going to read you a couple of uh, different versions just so you can see how hard it is to see what the Hebrew is saying. No one has power over the wind to contain it. So no one has power over the time of their death. And no one is discharged in time of war. So wickedness will not release those who practice it. Okay, so you've got the idea here. No one is discharged in time of war. You've got another one, and it says, none of us can hold back our spirit from departing. None of us has the power to prevent the day of our death. There is no escaping that obligation, that dark battle. And in the face of death, wickedness will certainly not rescue the wicked, the wicked and the righteous. Okay, so you got a completely different translation there. That's more of a paraphrase anyway, but the uh, we'll go to the ESV. Um, that one's kind of similar to the first one. Let's see here. Um, that one's kind of the same discharge in time of war, discharge in uh, that. Okay, here, this is a different one now. Let me read you that again, and it says... Um, no man, this is going back to the NASB. No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. And there is no discharge in the time of war. So they gave two completely separate thoughts there. There is no authority over the day of death. And then a separate thought. There is no discharge in the time of war. The King James Version says, There is no man that hath power over the spirit to retain the spirit. Neither hath he power in the day of death. 
and there is no discharge in that war. So they're saying it's the same thing. The day of death is the war that we're waging, whereas the NASB says it's a completely separate thought. They've separated them. And go down the list of them, you'll see more thoughts that are completely different because the Proverbs have to be inferred what is being said. And both of them make absolute sense, right? You know, I, I, I'm going to die. There's no discharge from that. At the same time, it's true that there is no discharge when a war is being waged, because when the war is being waged, they're not going to let you go. They're going to keep you in. So what are they trying to say? Which one is right? You just have to have to try to discern it yourself. You know what I would do with that now? And I, I haven't done it because I just pulled it up and we're not going to spend the whole day on it. But what I would do is I would see are the other clauses in that particular passage parallel? If they're parallel, then I would go with the King James Version. If they're not parallel, if every clause is independent, then obviously that one would be independent as well. So you just have to see what is the structure of that particular passage, and that is the best way of doing that. Because some of them, everybody will agree on. But when one like that comes up that's, you know, could go either way, look at the surrounding context and you'll usually be better off. Okay, 9-8. Well, I, I know that was a diversion. I'm sorry, but I, I just had yeah, it on my well, mind I and just, I thought I'd share it. This one is different than that one. Oh, yeah, there you go. Like, and I've got 20 some translations. Yeah. They're all going to be that way. But yeah, what you should do when you go home and everybody that's online, go to Ecclesiastes 8 verse 8 and pull out whatever translations you have at home. You probably have one or two or three if you're, you know, reading the Bible often and look at them and see the differences. And you'll be astonished because they all make sense. But which one is it that he's looking at? So, you know, when I first read the Bible, I read the NIV probably like, you know, 35 or 40 times, whatever. I read it a lot. And then I started reading other versions and I just knew that verse. And when I got to, I'm like, what? Yeah, that's completely different. So, you know, and that was just way, way long ago when I was just, you know, realizing the translations really take a lot of thought. You know, now it's obvious, but, you know, when you've only read one translation, you think, yeah, well, that's what it says. So. Anyway, did you have something? Yes. Sir. You do. I could see that hand moving. It was quivering. Uh, about supporting those who teach you. I can't get the exact wording of that. Uh, we're supposed to support those who teach us. Okay. Galatians 6, verse 6. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Let's go there. I, I'm, I'm sure that's the verse you're thinking of. It says in 6, 6, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Yeah, is that it? There you go. That's it. That's yeah. It. Yeah. Well, it, it's like, you know, I'm not a member here, but I support you. You sure do. You vacuum every week. Know, You're the I best guy I know. And you know what? I get such a tickle. Uh, Pat does this, Pat and Cindy and uh, Burke. I'll go and look in the back of my truck and there's all these cans back there. And because they know I take scrap metal down to every Saturday on the way to the projects and that, you know, it might help buy lunch or something. So I always get a tickle when I see that back there. Just, you know, people just throwing stuff in the back of the truck. And so anyway, go ahead. Keep going. No, no, that's, that's it. You're very appreciated, Burke Carico. No. I got to tell you that right now. You're very appreciated. And I know that the people online feel the same as well, because uh, I got some really nice comments about your study. I sent you, I think, one of them. But yeah, uh, yeah. As somebody that never compliments my studies. And <laughs> I, I razzed him about it, too. It, it's, it was my brother. We, I just Because he says, you know, I listen to him. And so I was just razzing him. I know he listens. And this? yeah, now everybody misses Bones. He's such a but good he guy. Was here. Yeah, he came last yeah, week, and you missed him. Yeah. Okay, let's go on. We're we're, we're dallying. Yes, we but are. Nine eight. Do I do I say this merely from a human point of view, 
Doesn't the law say the same thing? Yes, it does. And we're going to get to that in the next verse. But for now, after defending his apostleship, Paul has been asking rhetorical questions to bolster his rights as an apostle. <clears throat> he is entitled to partake of the benefits of being an apostle, whether he exercises those rights or not. It can be inferred that because he didn't exercise them, others were using it as evidence that he really wasn't an apostle. Because of his apostleship to the Gentiles, there was certainly a dislike of his status among those who argued that the gospel was for the Jews, or at least for those who held to the law of Moses. That issue was resolved when? Acts right after 14 and right before 16. Anybody? Yes, Acts chapter 15. It's the Council of Jerusalem. But it didn't change the hearts and minds of those in the legalistic faction of Judaizers. In fact, it hasn't changed them today. 2,000 years later, somebody emailed me. They have a person in their family that's caught up in the Hebrew Roots movement. And they use the same verse every single time. If you love me, you will do my commandments. And we just went through that just a couple chapters ago. Where is it? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 it was talking about circumcision. And it says, um, hang on a sec here. I'm sure it's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me see if I can find this really quickly. Um, one, maybe it's not, but I thought it was in 1 Corinthians 7. Circumcision is nothing. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. 719. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Well, guess what? In the book of Leviticus, what is mandated under the law of Moses? Circumcision. Therefore, if he says keeping the commandments of God is what matters, and circumcision is one of the commandments of the Old Testament, Jesus could not be speaking of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant laws. He could not be. Okay? He says if you... But they use that and they twist Scripture so that people are in bondage and they're taking full day Sabbaths and they're not even observing it according to the law. They're not wearing tzitzit on their garments, are they? And yet they say you can't eat pork. They take what they want and they impose it on you and the other things they let go. They're just like the Pharisees of the time of uh, Jesus. Anyway, so very sad, but there you go. Um, regardless of this, Paul's apostleship was valid and he was entitled to its rights and benefits. In order to bolster this, especially in the eyes of those who held to Scripture, meaning what is now called the Old Testament, have a wonderful night and be blessed, okay? Um, in the Old Testament, he will appeal to Scripture itself. He uses this particular formula abundantly in his letters. Instead of relying merely on human reasoning, Scripture will support his claims. In this verse, he uses two separate words to intensify what he is relaying. In his comment, do I say, the verb is lalo. In the comment, does not the law say, the verb is legi. The first word, lalo, is a general word, as a mere man. The second word, legi, is a, mere, a more distinguished word from Scripture itself. Life application, Paul's argument from human reason is bolstered and intensified when it is combined with the very words of Scripture. This is an extremely useful point to consider and to remember. Defending the faith from science and philosophy is a wonderful way to get people to consider the workings of God. However, only Scripture can specifically bring a person to salvation. One who relies on Scripture first for their worldview 
will always have a better understanding of the issues which surround us, be they morality, Zionism, the nature of God, or a plethora of other things that swirl around us from day to day. Now, I will say something about um, uh, that particular issue. When I first went to SES, okay, I'd never been trained in critical thinking. I'd never been trained in Christian philosophy or apologetics, except from an understanding of the Bible. And they give you all kinds of arguments for the nature of God. They give you arguments, the cosmological arguments about how the universe could not have created itself. And all these wonderful things that are really interesting, they're really beneficial, and they make you a lot smarter. I can tell you, I came out of college much smarter than I went in. But I found out very quickly, never to use those things when evangelizing people. You might introduce the nature of the universe and say uh, Einstein proved you know, that there was a beginning, etc. But you don't want to go too deep into that. Because what is it that God gave us for bringing people to salvation? He gave us this. That's right. He didn't give us all of those fine-sounding arguments. And I never, and I tried quite a few times, I never had anybody say, gee, I really want to be saved based on those logical arguments. Right. Ever. It never happened. So somebody sent me a uh, video just recently. It was a very short video, and it was good. It was a, a, uh, it was a, um, uh, argument for, um, it was a debate between two people. One was a humanist or somebody that didn't believe that, uh, that Christianity was the only way, okay? The other one was a Christian, and they were having a debate. And this guy asked a question. He said, um, uh, how, I don't want to misword the, the talk, but he said something like, um, are you saying that Christianity, um, you believe that, um, Anybody that doesn't believe as you believe will go to hell, okay? And he said, well, I didn't answer that question. I deferred because that was a trap, and it, it uh, would have trapped me in my words, and it would have set a negative tone for the rest of the thing. And I responded to the person that sent me the video. I said, that is completely inaccurate because Jesus said it. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. By not answering that question according to Scripture, he was doing damage, not good. Now, the rest of his talk was very good, but if you are going to start out by not answering a direct question about your faith, that is not a good way to start out your debate with another person. You always hold the Scripture and let the chips fall where they may be. To say, I'm not going to answer that or I'm going to work around that is bad policy. No, so remember that. Go ahead. Ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Rules. Is that like how many deferments do you get? How many deferments do you get? <laughs> like, zero. When somebody asks you a question like that, mm -hmm. zero. That's you're right. Yeah. Very, very what's that? Yeah, that's it was my argument exactly. It's not what I believe, it's what scripture says. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that was my answer to him. I said, it doesn't matter what I believe. It doesn't matter what a Muslim believes. It doesn't matter what a Buddhist believes. That is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is truth. What is truth? If this is the word of God and it says that is true, then that is what I believe. But it's not because I believe it that it's true. It's true because it's the word of God. So, But I, I was very unhappy with that first part of that answer in a debate and debates like that always get into that type of stuff you, you try to get so smart that you can out thank god god's given us this and this is what we use so i'm sure a lot of people change their mind
Oh yeah, a lot of people changed their mind because he wasn't willing to answer the question. Exactly. Exactly. No. Yeah. It is a show and it's you need to hold to scripture. Other arguments are fine, don't get me wrong. I I learned a lot in college and they're very good arguments for convincing somebody maybe of a closer walk with the Lord or understanding the nature of God. Why is the Trinity valid? Because we're taught it. The Bible does teach it, teach it, but most people don't really process how the Bible relates it, obviously, because the Job's witnesses don't believe it and they read the same book. So there are good arguments for those type of things, but that is not what will bring a person to a saving knowledge of Christ. Correct. Scripture is in answering those questions properly is. Okay, 9-9. Nine, nine. Uh, Hold on, Burke's got something. Acts 16. Yes. 14. 14. The Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. That's right. And it says to respond to the things spoken by Paul. He was giving the word out. That's right. The Lord opened her heart and opened her heart. That's exactly right. It is the word which does it. 100%. I've said this maybe just a couple weeks ago, but I'll repeat it because it's such an important point is that people would talk to Marilyn McCoo of the fifth dimension many times about Jesus and she never responded. And then somebody says, well, here, this is what the Bible says. And she said, that changed my life. I looked at the word of God and I yeah that's all it took that's all it took was the word of god changed her life so never diminish the power of the word of god and the effect of that word on a person's life the lord will open the heart of the person okay nine nine for it is written the law of moses do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain is it the oxen that god is current concerned well you would think so by reading the law of moses because it doesn't say anything contrary but that shows you that the Old Testament, especially the law of Moses, is showing us other things. It's teaching us spiritual truths, okay? And so when we take something like that and we say, well, this is a precept from the law of Moses and we apply it rigidly, we're actually not doing what the Lord intended. There is a rigid application. Do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. He said, don't do it, so they shouldn't do it. But he is teaching us something with that. Here we go. In his words of 1 Corinthians 9, verse 9, Paul uses a common rabbinical technique known as homer, from light to heavy, to argue his case. It is an argument as Chabad describes, and I don't like to quote things, but at least they understood what the argument, the type of argument means, so I do quote them, uh, whereby a conclusion is drawn from a minor premise or more lenient condition, meaning light, to a major or more strict one, meaning weighty, or vice versa, a fortiori, a fortiori argument. In common parlance, all the more so, you're making a point from one to another. He has, for the past several verses, been arguing for the case that he bears all the rights of an apostle. In order to bolster that argument in a way which the Judaizers could not honestly refute, he turns to the very source of their claims for their laws, traditions, and heritage, the law of Moses. There within the law are written the words, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. This is from Deuteronomy 25 verse 4. The idea is that to muzzle an ox who is participating in the labors of treading out the grain in order to separate the grain from the chaff would show a disrespect for the laborer even if it were a mere ox. Muzzling involved tying its mouth closed in one way or another, or even placing a basket over its mouth so that it couldn't eat the grain, thus depriving it of the food that it was right in his eyesight. 
It showed a coldness of heart towards the brute beast that was unacceptable in the eyes of God. Paul then asks, is it oxen God is concerned about? The answer is twofold. First, yes, God cares about the oxen or he wouldn't have placed the admonition in the law in the first place. For this to be prescribed showed that God did, in fact, care for the oxen. He showed the same care for the animals of Nineveh when speaking to Jonah. At the end of the book, we read this. You all remember the uh, sermons from Jonah. That's probably my favorite sermons that I ever did. I'm way too far. Um, I, I, I loved doing that book of Jonah. I absolutely loved it. So anyway, um, let me get here really quickly. What I liked about those sermons, just while you're turning yep. there, is the fact that you were baffled. Until the, very end. until the very last couple like, of verses, oh my the whole thing it's came like, open. Absolutely okay. right. It was, it, and it was because of one person's translation that nobody reads. It's very hard to read. It's very rigid. Is Robert Young, and when I had to call Sergio, and I said, Sergio, is this correct? And he said, he looked and he says, yeah, that's actually what it says, because nobody translated it that way. And the whole book came alive all of a sudden, based on one verse, and then a couple more verses down. He didn't translate something that actually was literal as well. So another aspect of it. But those Jonah sermons, because of the structure of the book of Jonah, was incredible. But uh, for right now, Jonah 4 says, um, But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock. And that's verse right there is the second one that even Robert Young didn't really um, put in the, uh, I think it was that one. It may have been one up here. But anyway, the last verse of the uh, book is completely mistranslated by everybody because they have a presupposition. Anyway, I, and I don't mean mistranslated. It's just not correct. You know, I mean, they just, it must say this when it doesn't say it at all. It does not say 120,000 persons. That's not at all what the Hebrew says. doesn't say it at all. So go watch the sermons. It's a wonderful series. Anyway, um, however, in making this Calvachomer, uh, or light to heavy argument, Paul shows that though God did care for the ox, he displays more care for man, his highest creature. This is with all certainty, though Paul doesn't explain it here. Because bordering the curious verse about muzzling the ox are examples of his care for his people. Deuteronomy 25, 1 through 3, deals with the punishment of an offender of the law and the mercy he was to be given. No more than, uh, 40 that's right, 40 lashes could be meted out, lest, or, uh, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these and your brother be humiliated in your sight. That's from Deuteronomy 25 okay so it's dealing with the human then it introduces the ox and then after the note about the ox comes more verses which concern the care of his people so you can see that even talking about the ox in deuteronomy moses was trying to tell us god is making a spiritual application about man even though he's speaking about an ox so yes it's literally true but two we're to dig deeper okay <clears throat> specifically the rights of and care for the widow of a dead man the principle of the ox, then, even within the law itself, implies something of greater weight than the mere words initially seem to entail. God is showing care for the ox, and yet the implication is of greater care for his people. 
the verses of such importance to understanding the greater principle intended by the law that Paul repeats it in his first letter to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 5.18, he repeats it again. Life application, the law of Moses, though set aside in Christ, contains valuable insights into God's relationship with and desires for his creatures. Because the Old Testament is so heavily cited in the New Testament, it is not truly possible to grasp the depth of the New Testament revelation without understanding that of the Old. That's what introduced our sermon this last week. I said exactly that. And I didn't know that this was coming up this week. That's exactly what I said, because if you want to understand, you're arguing over the same verses in the New Testament. And he has a logical sounding argument, and he has a logical sounding argument. How do you resolve that? Go back to the old, and the pictures and typology will point to what the Lord is revealing in the new. 99% of the errors would be resolved if people studied the Old Testament. To understand the new, you have to grasp the old. To understand the old, you have to be versed in the new. Together, they form one seamless whole. It is God's word. He's given us these types and shadows in order so that when we get up here, we don't have these arguments over these things. We know when the rapture will be because it's given in type. All right. If you haven't seen the sermon, go watch it. It's on the uh, list of superior word sermons. It's given in type and shadow already. We don't need to debate. Is it going to be pre-trib or is it going to be mid-trib or is it going to be post-trib? The Old Testament shows us. Same thing with almost every other principle. Is replacement theology correct? Sorry, it's not. We're going to see that again. Guess what? Numbers 2014 through 29 this week from Kadesh to Mount Hor. Man, it's all right there. And next week will be more of it. Next week is great. The bronze serpent, great stuff anyway. But you'll find out things in these passages which don't seem to have any relevance at all until you are versed in both of them. And you say, I can't believe it. Is it Hor and Sinai the same? What's that? No, no, no. Sinai and um, uh, uh, what's the other one? Um, if you didn't ask, it, I, my brain would work. It's uh, not Mount Hor. Mount Hor is in Edom, and that's where Moses was buried. Um, uh, you're thinking of uh, in Deuteronomy where it's called, um, I'll think of it in a second, but anyway, it's not Mount Hor. And it, but yes, they're the same location. They just are using different names for a particular reason. It's Mount Sinai and Mount, um, I'll remember it. If you didn't ask, it would have been in my head. You know, that's how it happens. You seize up like that. Or I do. I don't know about other people. Anyway, so I don't remember where I was. Oh, yes, I do. Um, no, I'm still here. Um, uh, let's see here. Where was I? I was reading. Um, uh, oh, yeah. Okay, we're still reading the life application. Revelation without understanding that of the old. Don't be afraid to dig into the Old Testament. It won't bite you, but rather it will edify your understanding of God's redemptive plans for humanity. Right? Okay, verse 9, 10. Surely he says this for us. Don't call me Shirley, okay? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Go ahead. I, I had to do it. <laughs> Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in hope of sharing in the harvest. Okay, completely different structure in this one. I'm going to read sure. it. Surely. Yeah, it says, or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt. This is written that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. Completely different structure. Gets the same idea across, though. Okay, 910. 
This verse refers to the previous verse. Taken together, they read, Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. Paul's question concerning the words of Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, is whether God intended to mean an ox, or was he rather making a spiritual picture of a fortiori argument? Is it altogether for our sakes, Paul asks? The answer immediately follows, for our sakes, no doubt. The context of the verse, which is in the middle of other passages dealing with human matters, indicates that it was actually referring to human matter as well. However, this does not exclude a literal meaning also, because if we were to go that far, if we're under the law of Moses and we were to say, well, that's obviously speaking about men, and we didn't muzzle the ox, we would be in violation of the law of Moses. Therefore, you must obey the law of Moses, even if you understand that it's speaking about people, because it's speaking of people, then an ox, and then people again. He's making an application about people. Don't be stingy towards your employees or whatever precept you have in your head. It does not negate that you are to obey the law of Moses if you are under the law of Moses. Thank goodness we're not, so go ahead and muzzle your ox. I'm kidding, of course. Um, but anyway, you see the logic there. You don't want to say, well, it has to only mean for our sakes, because if it does and people didn't do it, then you would be causing them to violate the very law that God gave them. Okay, so um, let's see here. However, as I said, this does not exclude literal meaning also. The word translated as altogether is pantas. Albert Barnes, after reviewing the nine uses of pantas in the, Old, in the New Testament, concludes, the word here therefore means that the principle stated in the law about the oxen was so broad and humane that it might certainly, surely, particularly be regarded as applicable to the case under consideration. And this is exactly what one should deduce when reading the law in Deuteronomy. The logical thought process should be something like, God has said to not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. The law is intended for us to understand and consider God's heart for us. If God is concerned about a mere ox as it labors, then how much more is he concerned about us? If I have employees under me who labor for me, I should give greater care to them than the law requires me to give to my brute beast. Everybody see that? That's what Paul is implying, and that is what he is stating to us. Okay, so... Um, Let's see here. The man who, I, I will tell you something right now. I have been doing the Balaam. Balaam, the guy that rode the donkey, I've been oh, doing those yes. sermons now for the past five weeks. Okay. And I am completely stuck. I have no idea what this is picturing. I've got all of the information. I've got one more Balaam sermon to do next week. Yeah. It, it'll be the final one, his final oracle. But I want you to know I am completely stuck. So you might not get any picture out of this at all unless I literally have spent all of my time even going to bed and just thinking about it i do not know so i'm just going to be frank with you if you want to pray for something frank. pray for yeah i'm frank today <laughs> anyway you can pray about that one because i i really this has only happened maybe two times in the past where i've really really been stuck and i am really stuck i've done all of the information i know every word yeah the 
type of donkey it's riding on is a female donkey known as an aton, right? That comes from the word etan, which is his name, Ethan, right? Okay, Ethan means perennial or ever-flowing. So it's teaching us something. There's this particular type of donkey that's being used. It, it, that word has meaning. And then there's, I'll give you another example. There are two servants that are mentioned one time. He got on his donkey with his two servants. They're never mentioned again, but that is there for a reason. So every single thing in this word is given to give us typology of something else. And I have not been able to find it out. So just pray about that. And I would really appreciate it because it's a complicated study. It's got beautiful poetry. It's going to be a wonderful sermon, even if we don't find the typology. But I would like to know why the Lord has given us this because well, it is picturing something. It might have nothing to do with it, but what always so crazy to me about that passage is that we're talking about this over here. And oh, yeah. Said, oh, oh, we're over way, here. That's right, Pod. Like, That's like, right. And it doesn't really seem to flow with what we've been going through. Okay. As a matter of fact, well, I won't get into it. I'm not going to get into it, but it, it is a real pickle for me. So let's go on. Um, the man, I just, uh, let me read the last sentence so you remember where we were. If I have employees under me who labor for me, I should give greater care to them than the law requires me to give to my brute beast. That's the, what's being implied here. The man who plows should plow in hope, Paul says. The laborer shouldn't come home hungry after his day of work if he has been laboring in the processing of food all day. That would be an abuse of the bounty given to the one who hired the laborer. Likewise, he who threshes in hope should partake of his hope, Paul says. There are various ways to thresh grain, depending on the type of grain. Who explains that to us in the Old Testament, the different ways of... Well, the Gideon was after threshing. Well, uh, one of the prophets, though, explains oh. the different ways of threshing grain. One of my favorite passages, Isaiah 28. Let me take you there. It's, okay, it's just beautiful. It's beautiful the way that it's worded in the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah 28... Every time I read, I have to stop and just breathe and just say, Lord, you're so wise, because that's what it says about him anyway. Isaiah 27, 28, 27 says, for black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin, but the black cumin is beaten out with a stick and the cumin with a rod. Bread flour must be ground, therefore he does not thresh it forever, break it with his cartwheel or crush it with his horsemen. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. God made all of these grains, and every single one of them has a way of being threshed. And it, until you learn the right way, you're going to ruin the grain. But God knew this in advance. And if we simply, you know what, I'm going to tell you something about this. I'm going to give you a, a lifetime example, whether I embarrass this person or not is irrelevant to me because he would do the same to me. There was, well, apparently while I was gone, there was, um, Will Groban was preaching and Will was talking about asking for the Lord's direction in your life. And one of the people in this church was sitting right over where Burke's sitting, obviously, because that's where he sits on Sunday morning. And he said, you know, I haven't done that lately. I need to find out what the Lord's direction for is in my life. And so he Lord, what do you want me to do? What am I missing in life? And this quickly, Jim Dwyer jumps up and runs in the kitchen. He forgot to put together the wine and bread. And it's almost time to serve the Lord's Supper. But that's what you do is you stop and you say, Lord, what do you have for me? And I've been doing that with, what's a, well, I've been doing it with these Balaam sermons now for, for weeks for weeks, Lord, I don't understand. I, I take a shower. Lord, I don't get it. I'm picking up garbage. Lord, I don't get it. I mean, literally, 
all day long and into the night. I'm trying, Lord, what are you showing us? And it may be that he's not going to let me know and somebody else will have to come up with it in some future sermon. But I love finding the reason for these things. And I don't like reading other people's commentaries because you always get some presupposition, you run with it, and it's never right. right? It's just because people don't go to the individual words and you got to do that. So anyway, that's just my dilemma right now. The sermons will be wonderful. You'll enjoy them, but he's telling us something really special. I know he is. Anyway, we'll go on. Wasn't that a beautiful passage from Isaiah? Marvelous. Okay, if an ox is not to be muzzled while it treads out the grain, then it logically follows that someone who beats out the grain with a stick should also not be kept from partaking as he threshes. Therefore, the principle found in the law is God's way of protecting his creatures and keeping the hearts of his people from hardening towards his laborers. It is an ingeniously placed passage in Deuteronomy, which points to much more than it first appears. From this springboard, Paul will move from grains to the gospel. And before I read the life application, I will say that in the same thought is how God has made every single uh, thing for a purpose and how you thresh these different grains and everything. Just, just think of anything that you apply in your life. I was out, I think it was yesterday morning, might have been this morning, I was out taking my morning sunrise photo. And here is a osprey. And he's flying along with a big bird, I mean a big fish in his, his talons. Right? And he's going off, there's a sign out in the middle of the bay from here where he's got a nest and he's taking them out there. And I was pretending to be the fish, don't eat my body, don't eat, right? And then the osprey is talking back to him, well, it's your time, it's my time to eat, right? There is a purpose for everything in this life and everything eats everything else. There's nothing that doesn't eat something else from the very smallest microbe all the way up. And this was going on in my mind there because the Lord has ordained these things. We have to look at life that way or none of it makes any sense. And we see our favorite dog die and we're crushed. Listen, the Lord gave us the joy of having the dog. Everything has a time and a season. And if you can appreciate that, life goes much, much more smoothly, I can assure you. So life application on this particular verse. The word given to us by God spans thousands of years of human existence. And yet it coalesces into one whole, united and understandable work of literature. The reason this is so is because God is the ultimate author of its words. He carefully, methodically, and slowly revealed his heart to us through his word in order to show us our great need for Jesus. As you read the pages of the Bible, never stop looking for spiritual applications and pictures of Christ. You will be abundantly rewarded as you do. Verse 911. What's that? Horeb. Thank you. H-O-R-E-B. Horeb. I, uh, thank you. I, I'm glad you said that because I would have woke up at three this morning and said, oh, dang it. Okay. Thank you. Horeb and Sinai are exactly the same place. Okay. Oh, there you go. Okay. 9-11. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? There you go. Grains to the gospel. Okay. Here we go. Paul has been showing through the use of Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, that the oxen which treaded out the grain is actually making a greater statement about the labors of people. If an oxen isn't to be kept from eating the grains he treads, then how much more should the human laborer be provided for his efforts? He now transfers this thought directly to his apostleship, which he defended several verses ago as one shown to be valid. 
and which actually was the means of transmitting the gospel to those in Corinth. And because their coming to Christ came about through his efforts, then wasn't he entitled to be provided for through those efforts? In this reasoning, he states it from the greater to the lesser, from the spiritual to the material. This then is the opposite of the previous argument, which was one, from the ox lesser to the human greater, and two, from the spiritual greater to the material lesser. He's going in the opposite direction. His words, if we have sown spiritual things for you, the if is to be taken as a statement of fact. We have definitely sown spiritual things for you, as he demonstrated earlier. And because of this, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? The question demands an answer that it is no great thing, but rather what would be expected. The ox was entitled, according to the law, to eat as he threshed. The context of the surrounding passage and Paul's words of analysis concerning it show that this naturally leads to the same entitlement for man in his labors. Therefore, it is no great thing to consider that those who minister in spiritual things should, in fact, reap in material things. In both clauses, the we is emphatic, only bolstering the intent of his words, and the use of the word great involves a hint of sarcasm. He is showing very clearly that his apostleship is one which has been both helpful to them and deserving of their help to him in return. Let's read that so you understand. We is emphatic and the word great, and we're in verse 911. It says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it tre treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt. This is written that he who plows should plow in hope and he who threshes in hope should be the partaker of his hope. Verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things okay that's the stress the we and the great okay so life application did i skip something despite this poll oh no yeah let me read this i read that he is showing very clearly that his apostleship is one which has been both helpful to them and deserving of their help to him in return but despite this paul declined to accept such help from them this will be seen as the chapter continues, and the reason for it will be explained. Okay, here we go. Life application. Paul says in Galatians 6.6, 6, which Burke brought up earlier, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. There is a good reason for this. The one who teaches spiritually is providing the most valuable of all benefits to those he teaches, assuming the word is being properly handled and rightly divided. Is it then too much to return to the teacher something of the benefit for his material profit? Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. For in that precious word and only there is found the true path to which heaven reaches. The one who so instructs has the most important duty, and the one who is instructed should so avow. With gifts and offerings, a thankful booty for spiritual instruction of who, the what, the how. For in learning the word, we learn of Jesus, and in him is found the true and only heavenly path. It is his cross which has delivered us from condemnation and God's holy wrath. 9.12. Well, this, oh. this word, if, 
you know, a lot of times uh, other translations say sense. Did, right. Does your say sense in that NIV? No, the, the one I'm about to read is if. No, 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 the, the, the 11. Oh, if, yeah, if, 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 if we have some. Yeah, yeah sense. A lot of times That's why I said this one, it, the if is to be taken as an affirmative. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Since it's done. It, well, Since it isn't, if yeah. it is. Absolutely. Because you read that a lot of times, and I, I, you know, read after others like you're saying, you know, right. other, and they'll put sense in there, and I look at it. And, and you think, what? Yeah, well, once again, that's translator's preference, one, and two, it's also to keep from copyright violations. They have to say something, so they have the intent, but you have to infer it. And that's why I was clarified that, is if means sense here, yeah. because, you know, whatever. And it could be, I don't know, Old English, which... This is New King James Version coming from the King James. They may have said if in the sense of sense back then. I have no idea. Yeah. I'm not going to relearn the English language in order to study the Bible. That's not going to happen. So, okay, here we go, 912. Another if. If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? And that's where it ends? That is, oh, I'm sorry, but new paragraph. I don't know why you wouldn't do it. Okay, but... We did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Okay, I'm going to read mine because it's, it's substantially different. It says the same thing, but if others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Okay, after the previous verses of chapter 9, Paul will begin to explain why he chose not to exercise his apostolic rights. But before he does, though, he makes an obvious statement. If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Okay. He has spent several verses showing how the rights of the one who labors include their entitlement to being supported by those they labor for. As this is a right which goes all the way back to the law of Moses and which included brute beasts, it should be considered a universal axiom. As it is, and because the other apostles used this right when visiting Corinth, weren't Paul and Barnabas even the more entitled to using it? It was they who originally came and shared the gospel with them. In fact, Paul said to them that you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. That was back in verse three. Because of this undeniable fact, he was certainly entitled to the right of payment for his labors. And yet, despite this certainty, Paul continues with, nevertheless, we have not used this right. This shows that Paul had an agenda other than profiting off those in Corinth. If sharing the gospel was his passion and his life's main purpose, and yet he didn't earn his keep from it, then it showed a sincerity of heart that others should have recognized. If a person played Major League Baseball for nothing more than food money and a place to sleep, it would show a true love for the game. But when there are millions of dollars up for grabs, one can never really tell if the players are on the field for the love of money or the love of the game. I wrote that sentence based on the movie called Field of Dreams because in one of the sentences during the thing, he said, I would have played for food money. And I've always remembered that is if somebody is passionate about something, it doesn't matter. The money is irrelevant. You will do it simply to do it. And that's where that came from is, you know, I field of dreams. I'm not a big fan of movies, but it was okay. But I remember him saying that because it was something that showed a passion about what he, uh, what he was doing in his life 
The same is true with televangelists. Just because someone has great oratory skills doesn't mean that their love for Christ is sincere. Knowing that there are literally millions of dollars available to those who preach the gospel, along with fame, power over others, and Learjets waiting in the hangar, one can't really be certain that Christ is the purpose for the preaching. Paul desired to avoid any such pitfalls in the minds of those he ministered to. Instead, he notes that they endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. He was willing to go to great lengths and through any trials to share the gospel, even without exercising his rights as an apostle. The word translated as endure is the Greek word stegomen. It means to cover closely so as to keep the water out. In essence, to contain without leaking. The external pressures on a ship as it passes through heavy seas is immense. Such as such a test of the ship will show its true colors. If it survives such a beating, it is a wor worthy vessel to trust one's life with. Paul was showing to them that the message he preached was a worthy message, one in which another could trust with their eternal soul. There was nothing which could harm their faith in Paul's willingness to suffer, suffer externally without cost or benefit was a demonstration of this. You see the wisdom of Paul, why he did the things he did. The word for hinder is the Greek word enkopin. It is only used here in the New Testament, and it basically means an incision or cutting into. Hence, Paul gives the idea of an impediment on a path which would interfere with following that path. If he were to come and lollygag around, eating food, schmoozing with the church, and expecting special treatment, those in the church could easily question his motives concerning the sharing of the gospel. He wanted no such thing to occur, and so he worked diligently and without charge to share the wondrous message which had been entrusted to him. Life Application about the secrets hidden inside each of us in the Bible, it says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's right. Only the Lord can truly search out the heart of man, but our eyes should be used to evaluate those around us, particularly those in positions of power or leadership. It is a foolish thing to implicitly trust someone who acts in one way while speaking in another. If a leader were to spend all of his time on the golf course while telling others about the importance of work, it would show a corruption of the heart which was obvious. Likewise, if the leader's wife were to tell those around her to only eat certain foods she deemed healthy, and yet she was often seen eating foods which weren't on that list, it would show the corrupt and twisted thinking of a person who merely wanted control over others. In such cases, evaluating the actions would show the heart of the person. Let us reasonably evaluate our leaders, both in the church and elsewhere, and not blindly follow them because they have fine speaking abilities or some other highly noticeable trait. Got it? 9.13. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what was offered on the altar there you go we talked about that earlier you got uh, the sacrifices coming in yeah way early yeah. no the uh, reading today from, uh, oh, oh absolutely <laughs> and that's right in <laughs> hebrews was our reading today so it's funny how the bible always you, if you if you pursue it enough everything ties together yeah. in one way or another it's really astonishing you know somebody emailed me i think it was today may have been yesterday and they said that they listen to the studies and the sermons on slow. They'll, I didn't know you can slow something down on YouTube and the like. 
or maybe on a uh, podcast and because I talk too fast. What? And I had to laugh at that because I when, well, I, well, that's fine. Everybody processes at a different rate, but well, well, they just slow it down a little bit. You can pick oh. your choice apparently. But when I edit the sermons on Sunday, when I get home and I got to edit the prophecy updates and the sermons, the I do the opposite. I put them up way fast, way fast. And even then it takes a couple hours to do these things. I mean, it's a very long afternoon, but by the time I get done, he, she listens sometimes. You know how I get playing them really fast? By the time I get done and I listen to it to make sure that what I just edited was proper, it sounds so slow. I feel like falling asleep. Did I do that properly? Did I edit that properly? Because I'm going at like five times the speed. So if if I am speaking too fast for you, I apologize. But it's not nearly as fast as I speak to myself on Sunday afternoon. Okay, 913. Go ahead and read that again. Again, okay. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? Good. Okay. This is going to have to be our last verse. Can I finish it? Yes. Okay. Um, from verse 4 until verse 12, Paul meticulously demonstrated that those who labor should receive compensation for their labors. Then in verse 12, which is the previous verse, he switched his comments to note that we have not used this right but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. He has moved from general labor to the specific labor, meaning work for Christ. Now in verse 13, he shows that those who labored for the Lord in the Old Testament received their compensation for the efforts. This move is to further bolster his previous comments about the rights of an apostle and how they should be entitled to support from their ministry. And so he again reaches back to the mandates of the Old Testament law. One of the 12 tribes, Levi, was set apart for ministering to the people. Within this tribe, one group, the sons of Aaron, were called to the priesthood. In return for these mandated services, they were supported through the sacrifices and offerings of the people of Israel. The first portion of his question deals with the Levites. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple? Whether they knew this or not before Paul asked them, they knew it to be true now. The question is a rhetorical one, and it indicates that they do, in fact, eat those things. Likewise, he asks if they also knew that those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar. This portion concerns the priests of Israel, who, in fact, partook of those offerings. There are numerous verses in the Old Testament law which so provided for the Levites and the priests. Every third year, not every year, every third year, the Levites received the tithes of the people as a portion of their wages. From this, a tithe went to the priests, a tithe of the tithe. When animal or grain sacrifices and offerings were brought to the temple, depending on the type presented, a portion may have been taken and given to them for their sustenance. When an animal was so sacrificed, the law even provided that the skins of the animal were to be given to the priests as payment. These could be sold for clothing, tents, parchments, and so on. That's found in Leviticus 7 verse 8. In all, the answer to Paul's question is that those who so minister and those who so serve do in fact benefit directly from their work. Using this line of reasoning from the Mosaic Law, he will next show that the Lord himself directed something similar for those who share in the gospel. Life application, and we are done. It says, Paul's words, though seeming to flip back and forth, actually form a well-thought-out progression. 
and following how he presents an argument and then defends it. We, and uh, in doing so, we can learn also how to defend the tenets of the faith. There is nothing wrong with using Old Testament concepts for such a defense if those concepts carry through logically to the New Testament. However, we must be careful to not arbitrarily apply or claim verses from the Old Testament which actually have no relevance to the New Testament concept. Care then needs to be taken in how one approaches concepts and prescriptions found in the Old Testament. As the years pass by, we grow in knowledge. We change from children into young adults. We move through school years and may head off to college, and we learn in life from mistakes and from faults. Eventually, though, we, to a certain point, age, where we start to lose some of the things we once knew. Our memories fade, whether a professor or a sage, and sooner or later our time here on earth is through. But you, O oh God, are from everlasting to everlasting, and you is a sure hope to have life anew. And so to you, our eyes and our hopes, we are a casting for the wondrous resurrection and eternal days with you. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the wonderful promises that are found in your word. Thank you for the lessons which were given. These are more mechanical and obvious for the running of a church and less uh, application spiritual uh, for our spiritual needs at the time. But everything fits together because we have needs for the church and then needs for self outside of the church. And so you have everything in there that will lead us to a right understanding of one, how to conduct our lives and two, how to take care of the church, uh, which we are a part of. And we thank you for those lessons, Lord. And we certainly thank you for the promises, especially that are found in Christ our Lord and what he did to redeem us from this fallen, dirty <coughs> world and to bring us to salvation through his shed blood and through the glorious hope of eternity with you through the power of the resurrection. He went up out of the grave, and so we too shall. And may that day be soon when you call us home to glory. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we exalt you. And we do so in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Okay, here we go. Let me back up. I'll put, do this later. Back this up. Let's see where we're going to go to.